since I've had the chance to be up here. So for those of you that don't know me or maybe visiting, um, my name is Jason Brown. I'm filling in this morning for Kyle while he and his family are out on vacation. This morning for the sermon, we find ourselves in the book of Genesis. Um, we spent some time there in the later part of Genesis earlier in, in the year, um, but today we're going to be in chapter 11. So to give a little bit of context before we read our passage, we are in kind of this set of pre-Abrahamic narratives, often referred to as the primeval era that precedes Abraham and the patriarch era that starts in chapter 12. These narratives really provide a foundation for understanding the state of the world and the worldview that the um, people of Israel would have had, and really it explains part of our worldview as well a prologue, if you will, to the Bible. Likely you're familiar with the narratives of creation and the Garden of Eden and the fall of humanity. These are unique to Christianity in that it started out good and that sin entered and we fell away from that good, as opposed to most creation stories where creation came out of conflict between the gods and that good is only a future goal. So it's important that we understand this narrative of the garden and the fall because it explains what humanity has lost. Humanity lost our relationship with God himself, entering from life into death. And in that, humanity has lost part of themselves as who we are as image bearers of God. We lost the basis of our created purpose and significance. Understanding what we have lost is an integral part of understanding what it means to be human. After you get past the narrative of the fall, you've got these chapters 4 up to 11 where we are this morning. There are maybe some familiar stories in there from like children's stories, Sunday school, Noah's Ark. Everybody loves that, right? You get to play with all the animals and make the animal noises. Um, but what these chapters are doing is they are recording the progression of humanity as they are fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But unfortunately, they're also recording the progression of sin that coincides with humanity's growth, as the curse of humanity's sin nature follows them wherever they go, and they seek to fulfill, to fill the part of us that was lost with all manner of pleasures that deny and waste the likeness of God in us and it wastes the gift of life that we've been given. So if you will, we're going to read in Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Um, let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word again. <clears throat> now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. They said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they will purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. 
so that the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord himself confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, a little bit more understanding of where we're at. This falls in the pre-Abrahamic narratives, but it falls at the end. This is where our particular story is, acting almost as a culmination of this primeval era. You see in this there are literary similarities that harken back to the creation narrative, back to the Garden of Eden and the fall. They go back to Cain's story. They talk about the flood, or there are references to the flood in this great disaster that happens. And you also see this establishment of a name um, seen earlier in the story of the Nephilim that are called the men of renown. Well, that word renown literally means name. So it's men of name, men who had made a name for themselves. And here we are again seeing a people seeking a name for themselves. So this is the culmination of all that has come before. Immediately preceding our passage is chapter 10 with what's described as the table of nations. Um, This is a description of the descendants of the sons of Noah and the nations that they had fathered. An interesting point in there is where it talks about Nimrod, who was the founder of Babylon and other cities in the land of Shinar. That kind of helps. Chapter 11 gives us a location and an understanding of time and where this would have taken place. The word that's used here for Babel is translated elsewhere as Babylon. Um, But they use Babel here um, in the English translation, particularly because it helps preserve a particular pun from Hebrew into the English language of Babel-like baby talk. It's probably more accurately pronounced Babel, but we're going to say Babel because who doesn't like a good pun? Um, Now, this may or may not be the exact same location of the future city of Babylon, but it's the same area, the same culture, and the same legacy. Our narrative this morning falls right in between two separate accounts of the genealogy of Shem, one of the sons of Noah. Um, And in that genealogy in chapter 10, there's a division at the line, at the generation of Joktum and Peleg. Peleg is named that because of the division. So this is possibly a time frame for where this takes place. It's a generation or two later after Nimrod who founded the city, then there's this great division. So they would have had time to build up and make these accomplishments that we see this morning. Um, We don't know for sure when it takes place, but we do know that it happened sometime before or during the events of chapter 10 because these divisions already exist. Um, And it's common in Genesis to have a big overarching story and then after that go back and provide detail to a section within that story. But what we learn from the table of nations is that God is the creator and purveyor of all nations. There are 70 nations listed there, which in the Bible, multiples of seven indicate completeness. God is at work in all of that. So here we come to chapter 11, and it is explaining what happened to create all these divisions in chapter 10. But it begs the question of, you know, you've heard the story about the Tower of Babel, right? God came down, 
thwarted their plans and dispersed them. But what did they do wrong? Well, if we look at the passage, there's really only two things they did, period. Um, They built a city with a tower, and they were trying to make a name for themselves. So which one of these was their sin? What was bad? Or was it even bad? Was it something else? Maybe God was just being petty and wanted to come down and mess with them. I don't think that's the case. Um, Was it pride? You know, they were seeking a name for themselves. Yes, that is part of it, but that is not the entirety of it. I mean, after all, in the next chapter, in chapter 12, God offers a great name to Abram, and there is an appeal to it that is not inherently sinful. But it's that they were seeking this name apart from God. That's where it goes wrong. We'll come back and look at this. But was it maybe disobedience? Was that their sin? The cultural mandate said to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Yes, somewhat. That was, again, part of what they were doing, but that's not the entire story. Because this isn't the first city. Other cities had come before Babel and had not been destroyed. And procreation was still taking place in the cities. They didn't stop being fruitful and multiplying in the city. See, the cultural mandate was part of the blessing, similar to the Garden of Eden that was full of trees. The issue is not that they didn't enjoy the blessing, that they didn't enjoy all the trees, or that they didn't enjoy being fruitful and multiplying, but it's what they chose to do instead. They made a choice to sin. We want to understand their sin in order to recognize our own. Else we just read this as another children's story that makes for fun when we can build blocks and knock them over. So what then made the issue of seeking a name and building a city so great? One, we're going to look at what cities and towers represented both in Genesis and in ancient Near East culture. And two, what the name would have represented. So first, looking at the city sin. The first indication that something is going wrong in this story comes in chapter 2. The people are moving in the east. Um, Usually, east or western movement has some significance in the Bible. The translation is a little bit confusing, but likely the settlers were migrating further east. Or at the very least, they were already way out in the east, and they're just moving around in the east. Um, I.e., like, people from the east migrated. Um, See, in Genesis, there's this recurring theme of moving in an easternly direction indicates moving further from the presence of God and his promise. Starting with being banished from the Garden of Eden at the gate to the east. Um, And this continues throughout the book of Genesis and really in some ways throughout the Bible. It signifies separation. What about cities? Cities in the book of Genesis, in order to understand that, we need to go back and look at the first recorded city which was not Babel. In chapter 4, it's recorded that Cain builds a city. What is Cain doing in his building of a city? There's three things that you can kind of gather of what he might be doing. One, he is seeking permanence. God had cursed Cain for killing his brother Abel to be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. But instead of accepting his punishment, he chose to rebel, and he headed east and settled in the land of Nod, which literally means in the land of wandering. He probably wandered around for some time, and then he's like, you know what, God, I'm tired of wandering. 
I don't need you anymore. I'm going to build my own city and settle here so I don't have to wander anymore. I can get around your curse. He's also seeking protection. Cain was afraid that somebody would come and kill him for retribution for killing his brother. So he pleads with God, and God offers him a mark of protection. But Cain, again, doesn't think that God's protection is enough. So he builds a city. Ancient cities would have had city walls, and they were built primarily for protection. And last, you see that likely Cain is seeking a sense of immortality, of glory. In that age, immortality would have been achieved through some sort of namesake building project, or becoming a great hero, or childbearing. Cain had kind of already lost out on being a hero. So what he does is he builds a city, and he names it after his son. He checks the other two boxes. Now, he's most notably known for being a great villain, so he didn't do so great. But, alas, this is what he was moving towards. He's trying to build the city in an attempt to replace the framework of life in Eden. Apart from God's agenda, he starts a new humanity, seeking self-realization, and he chose estrangement from God in order to seek his own glory, his own protection, and his own permanence. Textually, in the book of Genesis, cities represent rebellion from God's plan. It's not that cities themselves are inherently bad, else we'd be very confused when we get to Jerusalem. But, textually, cities are presented as departure from God's plan. What about the cultural context? What did ancient Near East cities in the land of Mesopotamia represent? In ancient culture, a city represented security. We've already seen that. But it also represented industry and technology and religion. Most cities would have been built for public use. There would have been public buildings and big administration buildings and granaries, usually all connected and associated with a temple. And the text and archaeological evidence differentiate between a city and a tower. The word here in Hebrew used for tower is very generic, but they're also not describing a Hebrew city. They're describing a, an ancient pagan Mesopotamian city. And in those cities, the most prominent building in this ancient temple complex would have been the ziggurat, a towering structure, which is most likely what we're hearing about and reading about here in this Tower of Babel narrative. A common description for this building was a tower with its head in the heavens. That's from archaeology. Sounds very similar to what we're reading about here. Now, this is probably an idiomatic phrase, like a skyscraper in modern words. They didn't actually believe that they had built all the way up to the heights of heaven. But you may be asking, like, what in the world is a ziggurat? If you don't remember um, your, I don't know, grade school, middle school history classes, um, a ziggurat was a pyramid-looking structure, uh, but not like Egyptian pyramids. It was solid. It was filled in with dirt. It was framed in brick and covered with fired brick. Again, similar to what we read here in the text. These would have been dedicated to particular deities, the patron deity of the city. The primary feature on a ziggurat was a stairway that went right up the middle, up to the top. And at the top, there would be a small room and a bed and a table set for the deity. The purpose of the ziggurat was primarily just to support that staircase. 
John Walton in his commentary says that the stair stairway is a visual representation of that which was believed to be used by the gods to travel from one realm to another. It was solely for the convenience of the gods and it was maintained to provide them with amenities along the way. This room at the top was called the gate of the gods, which is the actual translation of the word Babylon, gate of the gods. So I think there's pretty good evidence that this is what we're looking at. At the bottom, adjacent to the ziggurat, would have been the temple, where the god that came down would receive gifts and worship. And the expectation was, in return, the god would bless the people in the city. The prospect of a ziggurat existing and their function, as we've seen in history, assumes that they had a particular concept of God. This concept of God is the root of what developed into Babylonian religion and eventually, although slowed by God in this story, made its way through most human hearts. Around this time, there's a significant shift in archaeological history as urbanization develops in Mesopotamia. Gods were recast with human nature. You see this anthropomorphic, humanized gods. People started building houses for the gods, or temples, and filling them with statues of the gods, statues that were carved to look similar to humans. See, these people, they didn't want to be like the gods anymore. They wanted the gods to be more like them. Their view of God had needs and was distinguished primarily by its power. Whereas Acts 17 says that the true God does not live in temples made by man, nor is served by human hands as though he, had, he needed anything. Instead of the character, transcendence, and autonomy and holiness of the true God, they had a being with needs, and a being with needs can be manipulated by those needs, and then those needs must also be appeased. And power without character is capricious and volatile. This sin of the city is twofold. One, it continues the rebellion against God's plan, trying to prevent being dispersed. But it also represents a new offense against the character of God. This is the culmination of what all this growth of sin has been leading to. Before, you see the image of God being distorted by and in man, this human corruption. But now, you see that God himself is being remade to be like man, this corruption of God, or at least their view and understanding of God, has been twisted and beyond recognition. They had lost any real sense of who God is. As Romans 1 puts it, they had exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. That's what's going on in the city. What about this idea of seeking a name? How does seeking a name for oneself contribute to sin? I mean, what is a name, really? In our culture, names don't have a lot of meaning besides just who somebody is. I am Jason, but Jason means healer. To my knowledge, I am not a doctor, nor am I gifted with a miraculous healing. My name doesn't mean much other than who I am um, in our cultural con but in their cultural context, names were very, very important. 
To decree the name of something was to decree its purpose and its destiny. Ascribing the name of something was demonstrating authority over and possession of something. There's multiple accounts throughout the Bible of God renaming people after encountering them. This signifies that their destinies had been altered by their encounter with him and that their allegiances had a new master. The biblical account of creation shows that God held humanity in very high esteem. He had given them as image bearers the authority to exercise dominion by naming creation. Whatever Adam called it, that would be its name. In other ancient Near East creation accounts, though, this role was reserved only for the gods. These people have been separated from their created purpose and their identity as image bearers, and they lost that esteemed role. So they sought this new identity and this new purpose. Their distorted view of God, um, in their distorted view of God, they sought to take on this divine action through their own efforts. But taking it a step further, not just naming creation, naming their accomplishments, naming the city Babel, they sought to redefine themselves and dictate their own destiny and their own purpose. By seeking a name for themselves, they are saying to God, you don't have authority or possession over us any longer. We are our own masters, and we will not be dispersed. Humanity sought to control their own purpose and destiny, which only further indicates that the corruption of their view of God and their understanding of who they were created to be. Now, this may be a little hard to understand. I mean, after all, in our context, a name is a name and a tower is a tower. And as Shakespeare put it, a rose by any other name doesn't really change anything. It's still just a rose. He didn't say it that way, but um, it's hard to understand what's going on here. So let me try to illustrate this to help understand both the gravity of their situation and the absurdity of what they're trying to do. In 2016, the British Ministry of Science commissioned a new royal research ship. At the cost of around 200 million British pounds, this was going to be an impressive ship. It was being built to explore the polar regions and study the Antarctic ice sheets and really advance polar science in general. The science minister said that it would put Britain at the forefront of efforts to preserve our precious marine environment. And the director of the British Antarctic Survey said, this ship will be at the forefront of polar science and deliver world-leading capability to the UK to, for UK research in both Antarctica and the Arctic. This ship had an esteemed and noble created purpose, to be sure. The problem, the government decided to do an online poll and let people name the ship. As you may imagine, the creative purpose of the ship was quickly lost. It quickly grew out of hand as human self-determination via this online voting took over. Even the guy who had the winning name was felt swept up as he said that his creation had legs of its own. Now the winning name by more than 100,000 votes was Bodie McBoatface. The will of the people had sought a better name. Had a be the will of the people thought they had a better name despite 
it having nothing to do with the purpose of the ship. Turning its glorious purpose into a joke, literally a joke, and then also a joke in comparison to what it was meant to be. One comment said that if this boat isn't named Bodie McBoatface, then democracy has failed. I would venture to say that human self-determination through seeking a name for ourselves has indeed failed, as it only can. Another commenter said, this is funny, but I'm bored now. Perhaps they realized that this ship had a purpose. Its creators had something in mind when they made it, and that naming it without that purpose in mind only works for a little while before inevitably falling short. This is something that we continue to do over and over again. Observers of contemporary culture have coined the term Bodie McBoatfacing as making the critical mistake of letting the internet, letting people decide things that were not meant for them. The New York Times wrote, about, wrote that to be McBoatfaced was to allow people to deliberately make their choices not in order to foster the greatest societal good, but instead to mess with you. And Bodie McBoatface has a legacy. It's turned up in naming suggestions for schools, museums, stadiums, classrooms, bridges, pets, everywhere. And there's multiple spin-offs, including a horse named Horsey McHorseface, a fire truck named Fiery McFireface, and a uh, ferry for like cars, like a boat, named Floaty McFloatface or Fairy McFairyface. Because why not? Humanity that is detached from its created purpose and its creator can make a really dumb name for itself. But back to our story. This is the state that the people of Babel were in. And they received judgment for their sin. The first evidence of judgment comes even before the dispersion and confusion of languages, and that is mockery. This passage is hardcore making fun of the Babelites, if you will. The phonetic wordplay in Hebrew is so dense with alliteration and reverse alliteration uh, that this whole story would have almost sounded similar to Babel, like baby talk. All these words sound very similar, and there's groups over and over again of this repeated set of consonants that then the word confusion takes those consonants and reverses them. The sound of the story itself provides a visual and auditory example of what's taking place here. God is coming down into their huge mess and turning it all around. The words likely mocked the brick workers, making um, similar sounds to the name for the brick workers. This was an esteemed vocation representing the highest of technological advancement at that time. And then there's, of course, the mocking that translates into English. The building materials that they're using, bricks, are set to decay over time, unlike the stone that would have been used in Israel. They sought a name for themselves, but they are never named in this story. So we'll just call them the Babylites. And then there's the most common one that you're probably aware of is Babel or Babylon sounds like the Hebrew word for confuse. And it helps that in English it sounds like Babel is in like baby talk. 
This judgment of dispersal also acts as mockery. After they state their intention that their endeavor is to build a city to prevent being dispersed, God comes down and disperses them. You may wonder, was their building of this ziggurat an attempt to appease God, to meet his needs and manipulate him into letting them stay together because they were doing such a good job of providing for him? Well, if it was, it sure didn't work because they received judgment for thinking that they could earn favor. The story, too, also follows a chiasm structure with repeated words or ideas on either end coming to a central point right in the middle. And for this story, that central point is in verse 5. And the Lord came down. Now, obviously, God is omniscient. He could have seen what they were doing from heaven, but is emphasized here again to mock their efforts, as if all their efforts to build this tower with its head in the heavens that has the gate of the gods on top is so far from the true God that it's not even visible. God comes down again in verse 7. He brings judgment of dispersion and of confusing the language. In verse 6, we hear God's internal dialogue, thinking about um, what is going on here. This is similar to in the garden in chapter 3. And in both cases, God, he's not being threatened here. If we read this as God afraid of what humanity and their own enterprise might do, then we're reading it wrong. In both cases, God is... God is preserving humanity. In the garden, he's concerned that man may live forever in a sinful state, so he banishes them from the tree of life. And here, God is concerned that man's sin will grow unchecked as they propose to do more and more profane things. God is acting to slow the spread of sin while his plan unfolds. And his judgment matches the scale of sin. What's happening is not just individual sin, but is humanity that is departed from the ways of God, a communal failure to live in dependence on God or even recognize him. But God's plan does not just end with slowing the spread of sin. We know that he has a plan to deal with it. This story ends with no hope. Only man's sinful state without God in the world. But going forward from here, there is a shift. Since sin had entered the world, God has been working to preserve humanity. And after this, we see as God starts to build his people. Verse 10 picks back up with the line of Shem. But instead of in chapter 10, where it followed the line of Joktum, this follows the line of Peleg. If you read down, you realize that this runs down to Terah, who is the father of Abram, who becomes Father Abraham who had many sons. But even before this, there's hope. The author has one more chance to throw in some strategic wordplay by the way he places this passage. See, the Babylonians they sought to establish a name for themselves, something that can come only from God. And then we start in verse 10. This is the line of Shem. Shem means name. His name has immense meaning. This could be read as, these are the generations of name, or these are the generations of the name. Everything that they were looking for in Babel was already at work in God's plan. Shem predated Babel. 
And he's saying, look, this is already here. God already has a name, a lineage to work his plan for you. This is the true name for humanity. It exists only in God's plan. To Shem's descendant, Abram, God calls him out of the land to be a wanderer. And he promises that I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now, you may have guessed that this royal research ship wasn't named Bodie McBoatface. See, the creators, they stepped in and gave it a more fitting name. They named it after a famous British naturalist. A higher power had to step in and redirect this ship to recognize its true purpose. But the legacy of Bodhi didn't vanish completely. One of the unmanned submersibles that was used for exploration on the ship bears the name Bodhi, or Bodhi McBoatface. Similarly, God has created us to be creative. He doesn't intend to take away our self-expression. After all, Cain City had a lineage, and out of that lineage came all those who play the lyre and the pipe and all instruments of iron and bronze. It's a significant lineage that came through this city. In Babel, too, it has this lineage or this... Um, um, important part of it that lives on afterwards. The technology of firing bricks and using mortar as, or using tar for mortar was significant advancement at the time. It could be very strong and they could build large structures with that. These things are good, but only when rightly viewed in relation to God and his purpose for us as image bearers. In a system where self-expression means self-determination, we cannot have a right view of God, and therefore we can never have a right view of ourselves as image bearers. Thousands of years later, we still have the same problem of a distorted view of God. Do you concern yourselves more with what you do for God than what he does for you? Do you subject God to what culture says is right? Do you expect God to move in particular ways that may benefit you more than others? Or do you get angry when God doesn't move in a way that you want him to, to heal someone or to provide for you the way you want or in the timing that you want? Does his power look more like your will, or does your will look more like his good character? Humanity's natural bent is to deny our exile from God and try to reclaim and remake our own purpose. Fallen humanity's anthem is let us make for ourselves. Where do you see your name, your purpose, your destiny, and your meaning? Do you find that in your own efforts, in your career, your savings account, through your mastery of technology or knowledge, through your art or hobbies, or through the things that distract you or entertain you? We may not see the next verse. We may not see verse 10 in our lives that explains that God's plan has been playing out all along. So in order to keep a right view of God, we must know who he has revealed himself to be in his word. Personal and corporate reading and study of the word sets our minds right. Paul tells us to set our minds on things above, not on things of the earth. 
we know that God has revealed himself to be a God who has made a name for himself, and he has given that name to his people. 2 Samuel 7.23 tells us how God makes a name for himself by redeeming his people. Isaiah 62 that we read this morning says, You shall be called a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. No more will you be called forsaken, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, for the Lord delights in you. And his people shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of God, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. In Revelation 3.12, Jesus says, I will write on him, that is the saints who have overcome, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own name. Our name is not like Bodie McBoatface. We don't have a joke for a name. Our name comes from God. We are his namesake. God has revealed to us that there is a city where he need not come down and inspect. A city that has a right view of God, whose inhabitants have a right understanding of their created purpose. A city that is nothing like Babel. It is the complete opposite As St. Augustine puts it in his work, The City of God, he says there are two loves, then, that have made the two cities. The love of self made the earthly city, and the love of God made the heavenly city. God dwells in this city, and humanity enjoys him and glorifies him forever in this city. And we can do that because he makes all things new, and he deals with sin and sin and death will be no more. Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And guess what? In this new creation, the curse of Babel will be undone. We catch a glimpse of this at Pentecost when the disciples are proclaiming the gospel message And everybody is hearing it in their own language. And then the early church is scattered to gather people from every nation. Revelation 7 tells us that every nation, tribe, people, and language will be there before the throne. And Zephaniah 3.9 says that, For at that time I will make the speech of the peoples a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him in one accord. Amen.